I'm Jeff Smith and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and my aim is to share them all here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money, and in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick. What keeps them going in times of adversity? And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jeffrey Klein. Jeffrey is a visual storyteller who trained in the trenches of Hollywood. Working in the story department at a top talent literary agency to the president and production of both Paramount Pictures and MGM Studios, Jeffrey works on films such as, get this, The Truman Show, Mission Impossible 2, Legally Blonde and Die Another Day. Jeffrey built on his love of story and used it to share it with others, whether that be at the TEDx stage, a university classroom, or as an award-winning producer of a marketing video and animation corporate clients. So whether telling stories about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, swimming with sharks, or even having a gun pulled on him, Jeffrey loves to share stories and help other craft their stories too. This is a story about how to get the right message to the right audience and achieve the greatest impact. So let's bring in this storytelling master himself. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey Klein. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, really appreciate being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. As a fellow storyteller, it's, it's always great to have these conversations. Absolutely. Oh, it, it is wonderful to have you here today. So I know you've spent 10 years in England, in Manchester, so we'll come on to that in a moment. But where are you today? I'm just outside uh, Philadelphia in, I'd say, almost sunny Villanova, uh, a suburb of Philadelphia. Oh, nice. Well, you're looking very cool and suave. <laughs> How are you today? Uh, I'm great. Uh, another day to embrace the world. Indeed. Well, I can't wait to find out about your life, how storytelling has such a massive impact on our lives. But before we do that, to get us started, I want to find out more about you, sir. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? I was born in, in Philadelphia, uh, born and raised um, by, I was the son and grandson of very prominent Philadelphia judges. Um, in fact, there's a great story about that legacy. <laughs> I'm sure we'll come back <laughs> onto that one. <laughs> uh, but I spent, I spent my childhood, you know, very happy childhood um, in, in our family. I, I grew up in the same home that my father grew up in, and we would have these Sunday meals uh, in the kind of dining room where my dad would sit at one end and my grandfather would sit at the other. 
And my love of stories started there, listening to the two of them tell stories back and forth to each other. Uh, and I think that's where my love of story came. And growing up, you know, there was certainly um, some inclination that I was going to go into the legal field, but I was also pulled very much into the creative writing and and I was a movie fanatic as, as a kid. Um, and so I also wanted thought, well, how do I do that? Uh, that was, that was, you know, how do I go and work in the world of, of, uh, visual storytelling? Okay. So I guess you went on to university after school and college. What were you studying there? Uh, the way I ended up being a double major in English and sociology, but the way I was a very liberal arts college, that was my way of doing creative writing and film studies, which is most of what I spent my time doing. Okay. So your passion is for writing, is it? I, I've always been a passionate writer. Um, I think the idea is no matter what story you're telling, it starts with the ideas and the words. So even though I work in you know a visual medium, uh, oftentimes we have to write the scripts of what the story is we're going to tell before we get there. So yeah, I think I've always been interested in writing and, and the ideas behind it of what cre creates this, a compelling story. Okay, that, that's a fascinating subject, which we're going to come on to, because I know there's lots of science behind it, and that's where I want to get to. But you came out of university. What did life hold in store for you then? Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, my first job out of university was for a marketing genius named Seth Godin, who uh, is also a big uh, fan of the story. Um, and he, he was at the time doing popular publishing books, coffee table books. Um, but I wasn't quite ready for him. And, and to him, marketing wasn't quite movies. And so I think there was that. So what did I do? I went to go work for a law firm and then go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still uh, trying yeah. to find yourself, I guess. Uh, de definitely. And I, and I think it was, uh, I wasn't quite ready to move to LA. I and mean, that was the reality. And so I came back to Philadelphia to Temple University, where my grandfather had graduated from, and I spent two years there. Our law program is three years. And after my second year, a lot of my friends thought I was dropping out of law school because I moved to California. Uh, I did finish my degree and get the credits I needed, So, uh, but I started working in the film industry before I had graduated from law school. Uh, I'd been working at this town agency and working at a production company on the Sony lot, which was you know, it was like the dream, you know, I was going to walk on and, and look around and these huge sound stages. And I was like, I made it, you know, to a certain degree, uh, because there are a lot of people who said I would, it would be too hard to get to that world. You know, I didn't know anyone, um, you know, in terms of success to successfully break in is not something that's always easy. And, and the idea of it's who, you know, but the other thing that I think is really important to share with people is intentionality, you know, I decided, no, I'm going to do this, even if I don't know how. And then it's about listening. And so I would speak my my truth, as it were, and say, people are like, what are you going to do? What kind of law are you going to do? I'm like, I'm not going to law. I'm going to go into the movie business. This is before I even moved. And sometimes they'd be like, oh, that's hard. How are you going to do that? And I'd be like, well, just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't go for it. But then the other thing I did was people would say, oh, I know someone. And I'd be like, who? What's their name? Can you put me in touch with them? And so there was a week I was in LA before I moved there where I met a ton of people because I had, you know, been uh, intentional and, and per persistent about it uh, with people. Um, and then I actually, before I left that week, I got an offer to summer job and that's how it kind of all uh, stemmed from there. Once you, and once you're in it, it's, it's, it's pretty, 
uh, good to keep going. But I, I went into the mailroom of a talent agency having a law degree, <laughs> which, <laughs> which a lot of people like. I was, you know, uh, the, the, what happened was I, I, I ended up spraining my ankle playing basketball, and that's when I got into the story department. So my job was really about reading scripts all day, every day, and then writing the equivalent of like a book report on it, and it was awesome, and I loved it. Okay, we'll come back to that, but I want to backtrack yep. first. You, you dropped this bomb in there. You said it's all about intentionality, so mm -hmm. I can't let that go. So what do you mean by intentionality and what bearing does it have that you're intimating about on success i grew up as i said you know listening to these two great influences of my father and my grandfather who loved being judges uh, and were, were intentional about what they did and what was instilled in me at a really young age even though i didn't always follow it in my career was you have to love what you do you have to get up every day and go to work you spend a lot of time work and I, that was always uh, prominent in whatever I was doing. When I wasn't doing something that I loved, I felt it. And when I was doing something I loved, I felt it. And so uh, reminders of that. And I think intentionality is having a, a real clear clarity is important about what it is that you want to do and then reverse engineering a way to get there. You know, And I think because a lot of people are like, oh, you want to work in the film industry, you don't just go. I mean, some people might, that's not my, 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 my way of doing things is to have a plan. Uh, and while I believe as uh, John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Um, having a plan that changes and you adjust is better than having no plan. Uh, but I think it's about intentionality is about speaking as if it were. So the fact that people would say to me when I was in Philadelphia and I was, had nothing to do with, the, you know, what are you going to do with, I'm going to go work in the film industry. And people are like, how i'm like well i'm gonna move there and i'm gonna find yeah so it was about speaking that because what i also find is when you put things out in the universe in that way magically things start coming back and connecting the dots um to what it is you want if it, it, it's kind of thing if someone says you know don't you'll never see a, a a green car and then all you see is green cars you know i, I have twin daughters and so after we had twins we saw twins everywhere um, and so it's one of those things where, and I think that works with intentionality. When you start to get clear about what it is you're after, you're trying to get, then you see and you speak and you live in that way. And then you have a plan. You know, you actually have to, you know, I think it's, I'm a big believer in having a plan, a flexible plan, because as I said, you know, they're not going to go exactly right, but having a plan of what you think is going to be your path and then pursuing it vigorously i think that's the other thing about intentions the difference between a dream and 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 reality and success is pursuing it as if it's going to happen and and continually to barrel forward with uh, unbridled enthusiasm for that intention <laughs> and taking action definitely absolutely now there's another one you dropped in there as well i can't let you get away with that one because this is also so so important you said clarity. Yeah, that, that's important. Clarity. So this, it's not a little bit important, is it? it? It's hugely important. It's funny. I think as generations have gone on, it's gotten harder for people to get the clarity because the possibilities have really opened up the way that the world is. I look at my children and I, I think it's the hardest part. Yes, if you know you want to be a doctor and you get that clarity and then you can pursue the plan. It's hard to have a plan when you don't know what it is 
you want to end up doing. And I feel fortunate that I did have that clarity of like, no, this is what I love and want to go pursue. I'll figure out the details later, but at least I know where I'm going. And, and it's, it's worth trying to figure that out. I think sometimes getting clarity on not just the specific things, but about, you know, what is it that makes you, are you a type of person who likes to work on their own? Are you the type of person who likes to work with people? I've always been someone who feeds off other people. So for me as a writer to be locked up in a room, wasn't going to be completely fulfilling. Um, and that's why I consider myself a producer. So yes, I write, but I also, part of my job has become being a producer of these videos and animations that I create. And it's about having clarity of what you're good at. I talk about um, with my students, I had this idea of what I call, I've seen, I call it the success trinity. And so it's a, a Venn diagram with three parts, what you love, what you're good at, and what pays for the lifestyle that you want. Uh, and really, the clarity is in that middle section. It's in that thing. It's where all three um, meet in the middle. Yes. That's clarity to me because you can have something you love, but if you're no good at it, then you're, that's a dream. You can have uh, clarity of what you love and, and you can be good at it, but if it doesn't pay any money, then you're going to be poor. You might be happy, but you'll be poor. Um, and if you're, you know, you're really good at something and it pays a lot of money, but you don't love it, you're going to be rich and unhappy. So, yeah, that centerpiece is is I think always the goal. Um, and I feel lucky that I've, I've found something that fulfills that. But it's not easy. Clarif gaining clarity for many is a challenge. Um, and I think, again, that's why you kind of start out with layers of what's the kind of arena you think you'd want to be in, you know, and, and then kind of getting more and more focused of what it is that you're going to pursue. Okay, so you've got some clarity. You have intentionality. I want to be in the film this industry. Then I am in the film industry. I'm going to do it. The universe brings people around you and you hear them mention film industry. And, oh, do you know anyone? You take the information there. It's uh, things happen. It's when our uh, reticular activation system kicks in that we notice. This is when you have twins, you never saw twins before, and then this filter's taken away, and it's like, oh, you want to see twins now? Here they are. They were here all along. I didn't know you were interested in that. That's what happens with our brain. So th that that's all great. So you then decide you've got clarity, intentionality, but how did you actually get into the movie industry? What happened? What was your journey? <coughs> So that week that I spent there, I met with people who were lawyers in the film industry. I met writers. Um, I met people who worked at the agency. And the agency that I ended up going to, United Talent Agency, uh, so there was a girl there who was an, uh, I think she was an assistant agent or worked for an assistant agent, had gone to elementary school for one year with my older brother. That was my in. That was, <laughs> and so, um, and she had been connected to me by another classmate of my brother's. And so, again, the idea of the who you know, not what you know, is as true in the film industry as anything else. And I think the answer to people like, well, what if I don't know anybody? You know, is networking, is relationship building. To me, that is a huge piece of success in anything you do. And I believe it very strongly that that's what will get you ahead. And so, having these conversations about, Oh, who do you know? Give me their names. That intentionality leads to building relationships because you're following up with people. 
and then getting to know them and sharing your passion for what it is you want to do. And when you have a passion, that's why clarity is so important. When you meet with people, they see it. And therefore, it makes it easier for them to want to, you know, you build that rapport with them and then they end up helping you. So the the, the way in was from a relationship, um, you know, that and finding one that I didn't even know existed. So I think it's about, again, that intentionality leads to uncovering people who can help you um, and then asking. I don't, don't want to, you know, a lot of people have things and they feel awkward about asking people. The ask is is huge in terms of any success, in my opinion, um, because people, I think generally people want to help one another, um, and but they don't, they can't help you if you don't ask them, um, if they don't know. So they need to know what it is they can do to be helpful. Um, if you don't I, I ask, we keep they, that a secret. Yeah. yeah, if you don't ask, they can't say yes, can they? Um, yeah, and I always like the idea that uh, it's not a no until they say no. Uh, so, um, if they say, well, I'm not sure I can, you keep going. And I think that, so another piece of success for me has certainly been persistence, um, in, in when you have that clarity, you have that intention and then you could keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And that persistence in working those relationships. So it all sort of fits together in terms of, um, when you have passionate for what you're doing and you're intentional about it, and then you go after it. And how do you go after it is by meeting as many people you can who are doing it, sharing with it, asking good questions um, to learn. You know, you, you, you have to be humble in any approach, I think, to something. You know, the successful people don't know it all, but you learn by asking. And I love, as I'm, I consider myself a lifelong learner, and as I'm getting older, I love that I keep learning. And I think that that's a, a part of success as well, is the openness to recognize that I don't know it all, and I, I want to know more. And I can learn from anyone that I meet, anyone at all. Absolutely. I love that. That's one of my uh, missions each day is to learn something. So uh, to, to make yourself open like that, I think, is a blessing. Okay. So, yeah. So you get into the movie industry. What then happens? What was your journey? Uh, so I started, as I said, in... Um, at, at the talent and literary agency reading scripts. And then, and I'm also going to law school, by the way. Uh, so but why? My, my actual, I, I, I have to ask you why, because we've spoken about clarity, intentionality. Here you are, you're in the movie industry. Uh, why are you still going to law school? So when I, when I, I was a visiting student to finish my credits. So I was going to law school two days a week. I was working at the talent agency two days a week, and I was working at a production company one day a week. That was my week. Um, and the reason I want, I'd done two out of the three years. Um, and the, the theory, I think my dad and my, and my family says it was my fallback. Yeah. For me, it was not, not about that. It was about finishing something I started, you know, and I think there is some, and honoring the tradition of my family, the legacy. So those are the two reasons that I think was important for me to finish. Um, one was to honor that family tradition. Two, to complete something I started um, that I thought would be meaningful. I mean, there was some theory that it was going to help me. And three, there, th this is going to sound, well, maybe it won't sound great. Having a law degree was useful in the following way. Whenever I met someone and I said, I, oh, I, I have a law degree, Immediately, they assumed, rightly or wrongly, that I was not an idiot. <laughs> there was something about a law degree must mean you're smart. 
um, and while I went to law school with some very smart people, I think a lot of people who are lawyers are, some of them are, you know, that, that doesn't dictate if you're smart. There are, a lot of, there are super smart people who've never gone to law school. So I think it's, it, it's an indicator, but it's not a, um, it's not necess- necessary, but I used it. I leveraged it uh, for what it was worth. And I think that's another lesson of success. Use what you got. Um, so whatever I could do to spin my story of being smart or being hardworking. I mean, that's another thing. Law school is known as being hard. So if you've succeeded in completing law school, you must work hard. And again, using what you got to, to present yourself in the best possible way. But the, the main reasons were honoring the legacy and finishing what I started. Okay, I get that. So I interrupted you. So I'll let you that's get back right. to your story now. Back to the movie um, industry. Yeah, so I, I, I first worked um, in the story department at the town agency. And then, but I knew I wanted to be, I didn't want to be an agent. Everyone thinks I would have been a very good agent. Uh, to me, it was one step removed from the action. And it's like, uh, some people are like, oh, we're well, a lawyer in the, in the film industry. I'm like, no, that, that, that defeats the whole purpose. Um, I wanted to get to kind of the development production side that was dealing with the writers and directors and everything. And so through working, one of the things is that the agencies are the hearts of what, of action in, in the film industry, you know, every deal, they're all coming from there. And so they're, they're connected to all the different production companies and all the different studios. Um, and an opportunity came for me to go work at the studio at Paramount. And I, and it was a dream, uh, because now I'm, you know, I was, I was a tiny little peon in the, in the, in the big machine, but my boss was super powerful. Um, you know, she was in charge of every film that got made, in in the studio so uh the two years i worked for her we had a, there was a producer I had a producer deal scott rudin who just churned out movies and so i got in those two years i mean there must have been 20 movies that i saw coming in and out in different in different parts of development um and i and i learned how movies got made i really felt from the studio perspective because there's independent film which i know very little about um but understanding the studio system at that time I, I understood it and I was dealing with, you know, um, you know, you're dealing with celebrities and there's, there's some funny stories there uh, when, you know, Michael Douglas calls and you recognize his voice and he's like, hi, it's Michael Douglas. I'm like, duh. You know, like, <laughs> um, or, or, you know, Jodie Foster comes in, you know, these, these things um, were, were definitely the glamor part of it. Um, but there was also a lot of less glamorous stuff in terms of, you know, dealing with some of the contracts and dealing with some of the, you know, those things. But for me, it didn't matter because I was in uh, the heart of it. I remember one of our jobs in, in the mailroom was uh, collecting faxes, not that they have, and, you know, but, but what it also meant was you get to read the facts. So you'd be reading these facts that were being sent to agents and the same thing in the, in the studio, you'd be reading all these uh, business documents about deals and about creative. So they're going to, you know, cast the movie. Here are suggestions. The producer would send lists of who they thought should write it, who should direct it, who should star in it. And so you learn all about the players and how things got made. And, and it really was, um, I, I felt I made it. I was, you know, and I, again, I'm assistant to the president. I'm not very, I had zero power. Um, I shouldn't say zero power. I had very little power. Um, but I worked for someone who did. And so it was really, I, I felt part of a team that was helping to make these movies and 
And what was really nice about my boss was she really did care about making the best possible movies she could. Um, she, she, unlike many executives had gone to law school, had gone to film school um, and had directed a movie. And so uh, she was amazing with talent. Um, she was amazing with the creative side of it. Uh, even though there was a lot of business side to it as well, but um, it, it really made me feel good to see someone at that level of the industry um, who wasn't just, you know, the business. Of, there were some people in the industry who were just, oh, it's film business or it's tax business. Or, didn't, it didn't mean anything. But for, for many people, you saw that they did have a passion for movies, and it, and it was really nice to see. Okay, so we've all seen movies. At the mm -hmm. end, the credits come up, and there's some, yeah. there's some at the front end. But I think most people know what the director does. Mm -hmm. but I'm not really sure what does the producer do because you can have produced by and then it's executive producer and there can be a list of six of them. So <laughs> what is the role of a producer in a movie? All right, I'm going to give you as much detail because there's also, I worked at the studio of which people, people would always say to me, where's your name in the credits? I'm like, you know, when the Paramount comes out and they're all those stars, I'm like, just think of me of one of those stars. <laughs> because my boss, because my boss, who was the president of production, her name wasn't on it either. That had gone away. Back in the day, if you were the head of the studio, it, it would have you included. They went away from that. And so a lot of movies that get made, no one at the studio's names are on there, uh, even though they're the ones at the end who are really. Um, you know, signing the checks. And so I'll give you the producer is, and, and it varies, but I'm going to give you my kind of, you know, um, sort of the, the broad strokes. So you have a, a script and a script can get to the studio through an agent generally. And then generally speaking, it's attached to a producer. So producers are the ones who develop the material, find the writer, find the source material, and then, buy the rights to it or buy and or take it to the studio to be bought. So the producers in the initial sense is the one who's kind of um, the guardian of the project. Um, they'll, they'll usually work with the writer, uh, maybe the director, depending, and then they'll bring it to the studio. And so the studio then buys it. And so then it's in what they call development. And so it can be in what we call development hell, which means it goes for years sometimes uh, in different, it even goes from studio to another studio and it goes back again. Uh, but generally, we're going to use a, a successful one. So uh, a script gets bought, and the first thing they do when they buy a script, they hire a writer, which I always find really interesting. <laughs> so here I am. I'm a new writer. I've written this beautiful script. I've sold it for good money. And the first thing they say is, thanks, we're going to get another writer to write on it. And um, from that's why when you see the credits of writing, you often see written by and you'll see one name and then you'll see and and you'll see another name. Um, it's often because the first writer had the initial idea and then they have someone rewrite it. And then there's some people come in and rewrite it again and they punch up, they have script doctors which come in and do um, things. But again, I'm trying to keep it streamlined for so you get a writer, you rewrite it, uh, the studio gives notes and the producer gives notes. So both the studio executive and the producer have very similar roles. Uh, then there is the, then it gets greenlit. I mean, we're going to make it. 
you know, people say we're going to green light. Then the producer and the studio work on the budget. Actually, they may have probably doesn't get greenlit until the budget's been approved. So the producer and the and the studio fight over the budget because the producer wants to get as high a budget as possible so that they can have you know um, to make the best movie they think they can. And the studio's trying to keep the budget down because they're paying for it and taking all the risk. A producer gets paid a fee. For shepherding the project, uh, oftentimes the producer is the one who's on set every day. He's the often the one who's working with the director or with the writer, and is in charge of the production along with the studio. The studio has a whole production team in terms of um, whether it be post production or the, or going on set. Uh, when a movie is being shot, they send the dailies, which is the footage from that day, to the producer and then to the studio. And that's where studios get nervous when they see footage they don't like. Um, and then, uh, so both the producer and the studio work to troubleshoot when things don't go smoothly, um, which they often don't. I, I don't think I worked on any movie that went that kept to budget or schedule. Not one. Just the, the nature of you know, oh, we need to fix this up. Um, but the producer's there, and it's his, him, and the director. The director is kind of the creative vision, and the producer is is really the one driving the making in in whole. So that's how I look at it. Um, executive producer can mean a lot of things in film. It means very different on TV, but in film, it can mean money. So a lot of people are executive producers because they come from they're helping distribute the movie. It can be their uh, baggage producers they call them, which is if you're a star. Um, you say, yeah, you're giving credit to my producing partner. Um, and so they'll just get listed that way. Um, and then again, so you'll see a lot of executive producers that come in either because they have some relationship to the movie that, you know, it's the director's, you know, production arm or it's the star's production arm. Um, executive producers will be, so if you have a producer who runs a company, I run ABC, you know, Jeffrey Klein Productions, Executive producer, associate producer, maybe other people in my team. So I have someone else who's working for me. He's not the producer, but he gets a producer credit. And those things are all negotiated and, and um, throughout the process. And then you shoot the movie, then you edit it. And again, depending on the power of the producer, they might be intimately involved in the production, the post-production editing process. The more powerful a producer is, the more say they have in all how the movie gets made. Um, even with the studio, some producers are powerful enough that they push the studio around to a, to a certain extent. Ultimately, though, it's the studio that's writing the money. So I think and, and, and owns the rights to, to the movie. Um, so the producer is the, the bridge. I, you know, and I, I talk myself, you know, when I create an animated video, I say, I'm not an animator. I'm a producer. My job is to bridge between the business client and the creative side. And in some ways that's not far from what a producer does in the film industry. Their job is to make sure that their, the vision of the director and the writer and themselves gets on screen and dealing with the studio and appeasing them and dealing with the budgets and dealing with the problems. And, and it's, it's, again, we think of director and usually we think of the top director. But a lot of movies, the directors are not Steven Spielberg, you know, or James Cameron, and they don't have the power. Um, and you'll notice a lot of the top directors are also executive producers of the films that they do, or producers of the films that they do. Because when you're a director and you then become a producer, you have even more 
at stake and involved and control and power in, in that production. I've noticed of late as well, there's some big name actors who are also executive producers. So why do they do that then? It's mostly so they have a seat at the table when decisions are being made about the direction of the movie. So if you are just an actor, you basically listen to the director and he tells you what to do. If you are an actor who's also a producer, then you are in the conversations about the edit. You could be involved in lots of other ancillary parts of the movie other than the shooting of the movie. Um, and you also get a fee. And you know, so there's lots of, you know, um, yeah, the, the more involvement you want or then you, you will push to be a producer. And you'll see a lot, a lot of actors um, set up their production companies for that exact reason. So a lot of times you'll see when you see movies and you see, you know, Paramount Pictures and you say, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good, you know, Am, uh, Amblin Entertainment. Amblin Entertainment is Steven Spielberg's production company. So every movie that Steven Spielberg movies, you'll see, you know, Kathleen Kennedy is his producing partner. So you'll see the two of them as producers or executive producers. They have a company. And so they're, yes, he's the director, but he's also a producer. And that's much more common with the more uh, established, you know, uh, credible, powerful uh, producers, uh, directors, and, and actors. The more powerful you become, the more money you make and the more control and, and involvement you have. Um, and uh, without any judgment whether that's good or bad. <laughs> well, that was all very useful. Thank you very much. Now, the glamorous part. You get called yeah. by Michael Douglas. All these actors yeah. come through. So let me put you on the spot now. Who are the nicest ones, as in the nicest people, the nicest people to meet of all the famous people that you've met? I'm glad you asked me for the nice people, not the not nice people. So Michael Douglas was... That's coming next. Uh, <laughs> I, was, wouldn't, I wouldn't do was, that to you. <laughs> was was a, a true gentleman. Um, Jodie Foster had a production deal at Paramount Pictures when I was there and is lovely and, and, and you know, just a real professional and just seems like a really um, decent person. Um, it, it's hard for me not to share um, with um, the other people that we had. So I, I didn't have much involvement with Tom Cruise, but I'll tell you, this is what I'll, I'll share about him. I was at a premiere. Um, I, everything that I've with him is always positive. But one of the things that people may not, recognize unless you're in a room with him as he has this aura i mean he really has what i would call charisma to the nth degree and so when you're in a space with him he just fills it up in a good way um and so that was something i, I definitely noticed uh i, I got i'm a big you know sort of godfather fan and classic movies and so i was at a party and i had a, a long longer conversation with robert duvall who was super nice and just you know one of the veterans and so um my dad <laughs> My dad loves the story. So when Titanic came out, I was at a, a, a Golden Globe party with some of the cast members. Um, and Billy Zane, who plays the bad guy, uh, I went and congratulated him. And I said to him, you know, I, 
I think you did a really amazing job because I really hated your character. And so my dad always thinks that's the best compliment I could have given him because <laughs> you were supposed to hate his character. And he was very, he was a very nice guy. So it was, it was one of those things like, you're not the guy I saw on screen. You're a nice guy, but you, you did a great job because I hated you. Um, so yeah, the, for the most part, um, the, the celebrities that I met were, were people. And, and yes, they're exceptions. And there's a lot more rumor mills of, um, ego and things. And there's certainly, you know, one of the things I'll tell you is that sometimes what you see is, um, there's what I call a writer list. Um, so along with paying a star 10, $20 million, they have, um, demands, um, private chef, um, a basket, you know, uh, there was a story between uh, two actors when the, when the guys were like, what should we do? You know, one guy was established and one guy was coming up and he's like, ask for whatever you want. Like, and so he had a full court basketball court on set, you know? Um, so that, you know, there was some that I've heard like that in their contract was like, no one would look them directly in the eye. So yeah, there's, uh, there's exceptions, but for me, I was, I felt that, most people were, were nice people and, and, and cared about you know, their craft and about what they were doing. Yeah, well, just like you, I'm a speaker. And we'll call them divas, right? Not, yes, not looking, sure. uh, yeah, I, I only want brown M&Ms. I don't want the other colors. Yeah. You need to sort them out. And goodness me. Yeah, so it's not just actors who are like this. There are people full of their own importance. Not good for you at all, is it? No, and I definitely saw some of that, and I tried to just, um, and not just that can go from actors to directors to producers. So yeah, as you said, to speakers and to anyone who thinks that they've earned something from their position um, and and are owed something, the entitlement. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some diva going on in the film industry, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I worked with really good people. I'll say that good good me too i've only met two or three divas fortunately so all the, all the rest of the time i've been absolutely blessed okay so i said earlier that you spent some time in england in manchester 10 years no less you didn't just pop over here so what was this transition between the movie industry and manchester in england uh, I think I referenced John Lennon, John Lennon earlier about life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. So I'm in the film industry, enjoying it, doing well, you know, learning. Uh, and then I met a girl. Ah, and so yeah. when people say, why did you move from one of the sunniest places to one of the rainiest places? My answer is always love. Um, I fell in love. I got married and we were looking at having a family and we had no family in LA. And so when we were thinking about either, either Philadelphia where I'm from or where she was from Manchester, England, uh, we ended up going to Manchester. Um, I became a dual citizen. All my children were born there. Uh, and I went into the real estate industry. Um, the thought was that I would do real estate and then try and write in the evening. And then what happened is my three children happily filled the void of any extra discretionary time I had. Um, and as I said, one of the, you know, I, my, I worked with my father-in-law who loves real estate. I have a brother who loves real estate. I don't. It didn't. It didn't uh, fulfill me, and, and I'm still involved with it. But I was fortunate enough 
to both have support and intention that when I was frustrated with the film industry, sorry, with the, with the uh, real with property, I had the wherewithal to do something about it. Now I recall very vividly living in Manchester, working um, and thinking I've got a mortgage, I've got car payments, I have children. Um, how could I possibly think about doing something different? This is, you know, my vocation now and I need, I need to do these things in order to support my family. Thankfully, not that far afterwards, I said, how can I not look to do something? Cause I was not happy. And so how could I not look to do something that would make me happy? Because I need to be a role model for my children. I need to get up every day and not be miserable. Um, you know, I was leading down that eventually my wife is following as she is of me, you know, to be like enough is enough. Um, so I was really fortunate and I made a plan. I had a very, I, I wrote, um, I have a document, which I will never share with anyone called my midlife crisis, uh, plan. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, where I said, okay, you know, and so rather than just quitting my job and I was working for myself, so that would have been really chat. You're fired. Um, you know, I don't know how that would have worked. Um, but I, I started, I, I was fortunate enough that I had an intention again, and I didn't have, I basically started talking to people and, and through relationships, I, I found an opportunity to pursue marketing again. And so now I had this marketing actually at this stage of my life kind of fulfilled my right and left brain. So I finished my law degree. I'd been working in real estate. I'd worked on the business side and the creative side and marketing kind of balanced those two things. And I was really fortunate um, that someone in Manchester said, yeah, well come and help us. And it's an awesome experience. And at the same time, we were thinking about moving back um, to the States or moving to the States. Um, and so my plan was that I would get some experience in England and then move to the States, get some experience here and then either carry on or start my own thing. And these are the map, the things that I mapped out went roughly according to plan. Um, and so it's again, having that intentionality, having strong relationships. Cause I moved back to Philadelphia where I hadn't lived for over 15 years and quickly found that there are people that I still knew that could be helpful. Um, and then meeting a whole host of new people. Um, so it was, it was really, again, relationships is everything. Um, and it, it really, I, I'm now doing something I really love and I feel really lucky and blessed to be able to do what I do. Um, Cool. So there's the. I, I know. I know. I cut Manchester kind of as a very slight, small slice, and it was an incredible experience. And I still, you know, people say, "What was it like living in Manchester?" And I said, "It's really hard for me to separate out living in Manchester and living in within the community that was my wife's family and friends." And um, and so I, I, my in-laws are amazing people, and I'm really lucky that um, they are because I, I think I might have. Uh, had a much harder time and they're just really supportive. And so, um, my time I, I have, I miss people in Manchester. I miss the rain so much. Um, and <laughs> the, the joke I always tell people, so people for, I would say, you know, in England, they always ask you, who do you support? And I lived in Manchester where there's two main teams. And so Red people, blue, yeah. for 10 years, pe people say for 10 years while I live there, who, who do you support? Who do you support? And I always gave the same answer, which was the Eagles which is the Philadelphia American football team. And everyone kind of look at me going, wait, who? Um, so thankfully I didn't, I didn't get involved in that debate. <laughs> yeah. She best, better to stay out of that one. That's Manchester United or Manchester city. 
Okay, so we're into marketing now. So this is a nice blend because you've learned the art of storytelling through your career in the movies, and now you're into marketing, which is about, again, storytelling for a business context to match the audience with the right product at the right time for the biggest impact. But storytelling, it's not a new thing. As you've said, you sit at the dinner table with your father and your grandfather talking to each other, but there's many movies we can think of where people are sitting around the campfire and they're telling stories to each other, a lot about education as well. But what I'm interested in now is why is storytelling so important to us as human beings? Yeah, a lot of people say to me that we've been telling stories forever. And I'm like, exactly. You know, that as human beings, we're hardwired for story. One of the things that I think is finally catching up is that for a long time, yeah, we tell stories around the dinner table, around the campfire, but somehow when we became grownups and went into business, it was all about the facts and the figures and the numbers and, uh, and, and all the achievements and, and those kinds of things. And I, the reason why story is so important now more than ever um, is based on how our brains work. It, you know, the science behind it is the kind of, I think the foundational piece that is so important to understand in business because while you have customers or clients, they're human beings. Um, and I think the job of any good marketer is to communicate effectively. And I believe strongly that the best way to communicate is by telling a story and the science backs it up. So the story is that there was a professor uh, at Princeton University, or Hassan, who was really fascinated by kind of communication and brain activity. And he did an experiment. We had one group of people that were given lots of data and figures, uh, features and benefits as they talk about kind of in the marketing space. And then there was a second group of people that were told that the facts and figures, but it was embedded and incorporated into a narrative, into a story. And he had hooked them up to uh, monitor their brain activity. And the first group of people, two parts of their brains activated, the, the vernix and, and the Broca's area, which are hugely important because they're really the, the meaning decoders so that I can understand what someone's saying, the, the words that are saying. Um, the people that were told a story, on the other hand, they're, they're, yes, they're vernix and Broca's areas, but their whole brains lit up. And interestingly, the parts of their brains that lit up or the parts of the brain that they would use if they were experiencing the story themselves. And I find that really fascinating. That I always think of it as like, when you're telling a story to someone, you're letting them vicariously experience it at a brain level. Um, and so the difference is that the impact is much greater in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, the results are, and that kind of mirroring, there's an actual term called neural coupling that I think is fascinating, where the brain activity of a speaker is mirrored by the listener. And I always use the example that if I'm kicking a ball, the listener's motor cortex actually activates. Or if I'm talking about sweet smell of fresh baked cookies, they're all, you know, the listener's olfactory is being activated. Um, there's also these, there's a lot of different increases. When you tell someone a story, there's chemical changes. So there's an increase in oxytocin um, and there's an increase in cortisol. Cortisol is the fight or flight. And the reason it's so important is because it is really what dictates attention. And I think effective communication requires getting someone's attention. So by telling the story immediately, you're telling this person this is important enough to pay attention to. And that's what the cortisol helps them do. 
And then the oxytocin, also known as kind of the love hormone, is that emotional connection. So story's got this powerful um, one-two punch of both getting your attention and engaging you in, in that emotional level. And the results that, that the prof- Professor Hassan found out was that there's an increase in two major things, retention and understanding. So if you're a marketer and you're, you know, and you're trying to communicate to someone so they understand what it is you're providing, offering to them, having them understand it, and it's about 20 to 40% increase, pretty important. On the flip side, if you want them to remember, being memorable is hugely important in marketing and communicating effectively, telling the story helps you do that. And I like to point out that we're not saying the facts and figures should be thrown away. It's not an either or, because those facts and figures help justify the emotional connection. But you need to make sure if you're going to capture someone's attention, keep their attention, and reach them in a more impactful way, story is your ticket to, to do that. Um, and so that's, you know, the science of story for me is the why. Why do we need to tell stories? And then there's a whole, you know, range of how, what, and things like that. Okay, let's see if we can draw some parallels then. So okay. there must be a, a formula for storytelling or i'm sure (laughs) so so let's begin there then and and is it possible to draw a parallel between how the movie industry uses the formula and then how we can apply it to either business to be the same or to be or to use storytelling to be more successful in our lives whatever it is we choose to do yeah, and we have to go back a little further. You know, we talked about storytelling not being um, a new thing. And if we go back to about 350 BC, we find a guy that I like to refer to as the godfather of narrative. That's my, my moniker, which is Aristotle. Uh, and there's some debate, but for, for our purposes, most people uh, credit Aristotle with creating the three-act structure. Beginning, middle, end. That's how you create a story. And from that perspective, the film industry, books, um, and good stories in general have followed that formula. Now, Hollywood has found people who've broken that formula, but I always say to people, you you need to master the formula first before you can start making changes. Um, And then if you look, you know, at the breakdown of of a movie script and there's three acts and then there's, you know, the different moments of time where things happen. Um, the other thing that movies generally do is find a way to make the story relatable to the, the viewer um, through the the hero's journey. And again, you've got a Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and the hero's journey. Um, so I think those things are exactly what businesses can, can learn from and follow. And so I developed a, a, a very simple, because I think keeping things simple is really a good idea, um, formula structure for telling a good business story, which I call the story pad. Um, and so the PAD represent the beginning, middle, and end of your story. And the P represents the pain or the problem of your audience. So as a marketer, I need to focus on you. Who am I helping? And I think by starting with their problem or the pain, that's how you get their attention. And I, and I often use, um, personal injury lawyers who I know are reviled in many ways, but they're good when they tell their story because 
they always start their marketing with, have you been injured in an accident? And I'm like, that's, that's the perfect example. Because if you haven't been injured in an accident, then you move on and you, we don't waste any time with you. And if you have been injured in an accident, you're going to be like, yes, I have. And so that's the P. You know, whatever it is, that you, you need to get clarity on what is your business solving for someone and start there because that's going to be able to capture attention. And the A is real simple. You know, the PAD, the, P, the A is the answer for that problem. So, you know, you've been injured in an accident, we can help you, you know, get money, uh, in, you know, in that example. Um, whatever it is, you know, a lot of businesses, it's like, you have a problem, we can help you, here's our solution. That's the the, the service or product that you have that's going to help them. Um, and a lot of businesses stop there. You've got a problem, I've got an answer. Um, but I think the D is really important for telling the story. Um the whole story. And so for me, the D stands for the difference. So you have the problem, the answer, and the difference it makes on that person or on that business. That's the impact. Because giving the solution without the impact, you're not you're kind of leaving them hanging. It's like a cliffhanger that never ends. And we need that resolution. We need to put in the mind of the person what life will look like, the transformation from before when you had the problem, and then we've solved the problem. Now, what does your life look like? So I was, I've used an example a lot about, you know, a restaurant. If you're a restaurateur, what's the problem people have? Well, they're hungry and they need somewhere to eat. Well, I have the answer. I've got a great, you know, a vegan restaurant um, or whatever it may be. Um, fish and chips. We'll go to the fish and chip shops <laughs> for my mad tip to read. So you're hungry. You want some good food and I got some fish and chips for you. And the result, the impact, the difference is that when you come to, you know, Jeff and Jeff's fish and chips, um, you'll get some, you'll have a really good meal and you'll feel really satisfied and you'll be happy. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, what is the result you're we're aiming for? Happiness, you know, and whether that's in the food form or any other form, but the difference will be that you go from being, you know, hungry and, and can't find anywhere to eat to you've had a great dining experience. Can I say that about fish and chips? I certainly can. Uh, I've eaten, you know, some amazing fish and chips in Manchester, and it has been an awesome dining experience. So that's the PAD. That uh, keeps it simple and can be applied to almost any industry um, that I found, you know, because it's, it's simple about starting with that problem. And it's about focusing on the customer, being customer-centric. People talk about that. What does that mean to be customer-centric? means to be thinking about what it is that matters to them. You know, so we talk about actually watching that story. You have to use what I call the 11th commandment, which is know thy audience. You don't know your audience. Too many businesses are talking about themselves. We're the best. We just won this award. We're just, blah, blah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about what you do. People only care about what you can do for them. Right. That leads me beautifully because I'm <laughs> sitting on my hands here. <laughs> And I'm thinking, I, I can wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. So he, okay. he, here's what I want to throw in. When people become aware of PAD and the hero's journey, well, we're going to talk about the hero's journey because I've mentioned the hero's journey to lots and lots of people. And they go, what? what? What's that about? So let's expand the hero's journey. So <clears throat> when you become aware of it, you become, no, no, I have become, <laughs> a 
less and less tolerant of other people and how they contact me. For instance, I've had about between 15 and 20 messages on LinkedIn today. And this is people who don't know me. They've clearly not done their research on me. And it's a, it's a message that is a, a cold outreach call. And they go, hey, Jeff, I notice you're an author. Let me tell you about me. <laughs> I do this. I do that. I help these people. I, you know, and I, and, oh, my goodness me. It makes me sick. And, and at the end, I mean, I, I don't read all of it. I, I'm just intolerant of it now. And you get to the end, I said, I'm sure you think it's great. Please reach out to me. And it's like, why would I do that? You know nothing about me. It's all about you. And I don't care about you. I only care about me. And we're all the same. So let's talk about the hero's journey then and PAD, putting it all in there in how can we improve reaching out to other people, whether that's in a video, whether that's in an, in an email, whether it's in a, a conversation. I'm back to you now. So in brief then, what is the hero's journey? Why, why is it important? And then we'll talk about all the mistakes that all these people make. Well, the, the hero's journey comes again, you know, is about, it's a, it's a kind of template for storytelling. Um, and it's about, you know, you have a hero who's going on an adventure and then, you know, has problems and then basically has a revelation and then has transformation. And so it goes, it's, you know, it's about that arc. When you think about a character arc, it, um, I, I often reference uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Shapes of Stories. And it's, he basically says you can plot any story uh, on a grid of, you know, good fortune, ill fortune and then beginning and end. And the thing is that if you have a story, whatever it is, where there's no change, you know, you know, I was doing well, things can do, do well. I can do that. You need conflict. And that's the thing about the hero's journey, about any journey, any story, if there's no conflict, then it's, it's going to be boring. And so, you know, you need that ups and downs. And, you know, if you look at how Pixar does their movies, they actually have, um, these little peaks and valleys throughout their story. Um, and, and good movies do that where you think, Oh, we're, you know, here's someone who's going along and then, Oh my God, something horrible happens. And then they come up and they're great. And so that's the journey of, of the hero's journey is oh, they go on this adventure where bad things happen, good things happen. And then eventually they learn and become a better person or they, they're, you know, someone helps them and then off they go. Um, and they live happily ever after in the kind of traditional um, fairy tale. Um, so that's, that's a huge, and again, it's about, you need to be doing that for your customers when you're doing marketing. Uh, and I'm going to get to your question about reaching out to people in a second, cause I have a slightly different answer to that. Um, but when you're marketing people, again, it's not about you, you know, um, if you're familiar with story brand, uh, Donald Miller, who's amazing book, I wish I had written it. Um, he talks about basically he goes in painstaking detail about kind of the hero's journey and how you do it with customers. But one of the things that you know, he, uh, on a simple level, it's about you are not the hero, you, the business, you know, you, the marketer are not the hero of the story, your customer, your client is, and what you are is the guide. And so the guide is someone who takes you along the way 
as you have your journey to kind of push you in the right direction and give you the information or give you, you know, uh, um, is to, to help you. And that's what businesses should be looking to do. Businesses need to be serving of their audience and the messaging they do and taking the hero, the customer, through the journey. And that's what the pad, the story pad does. It has your customer who maybe something's going fine. And then, oh no, there's a problem. And they go down in this hole. And this actually relates to one of, you know, man in a hole by Kurt Vonnegut shapes stories. And I love that they kind of mirror one another. So you have a person and they have a problem. Oh no. And then, oh, well, don't worry. You're you, the person's had the problem. Here's the guide. Here is my service or product can help you get out of that hole and you'll transform and you'll, your adventure will lead to happy happiness to infinity. Okay. That's so, so, so just for fun then, can you sure. think of a movie where we have the hero mm-hmm. on their journey and they meet with the guide and come out? Um, I, I go to the kind of default one that a lot of people talk about, which is Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, and so if you think of Luke as the hero of the story and Yoda is the guy, that's the easiest, you know, yeah, sure. uh, I think for people, and it's, it's, a few people saw the movie. So I think, you know, it might run to some. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's it. And, and they're in movies all the time. Um, I mean, you know, if you think about um, even, even the, the stories of, um, Again, Disney and Pixar do an amazing job of showcasing this. Um, but most movies that have been successful, and you can go back as far as you want, um, have this setup where there's a hero who gets some. You know, maybe it's not one guy. Maybe it's a couple of different people who are guiding them along. You know, they're not. The, the The point being that the hero's not getting through that transformation on their own. And then, so whether it's a specific guide, you know. Um, and Obi-Wan Kenobi would be the guide as well. You know, so Yoda and Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan is the initial guide um, in Star Wars, I'm thinking of Empire. But, um, you know, the idea is that the hero doesn't get from start to finish, doesn't go through the trials and the transformation without help. And so any customer is going to go through some pain, like the story pad, and then you're going to be the guy who's going to give them the help that they need to make the difference, to, to be the hero, to become you know, successful. And so I think that's the way we want to think about our, our business stories is making sure that our hero is the customer and telling the story of their journey where the guiding and the help comes from your product or service. So it's not about as much about your product or service, it's about how the product or service fits into the story of the hero. Wonderful. So now we have some clarity. Let's let's go for intentionality then. How do okay. we then apply this to emails, outreach, and all kinds of stuff like this? I, I think you have to step back um, and recognize if your objective is to get something from someone, you've already kind of lost in some ways. So I think again, if I'm reaching out to someone, uh, and I, whether it's on LinkedIn or email, which, and I get plenty of bombardments of people during, you know, the, the, uh, bait and switch as we like to call it. I'd love to connect. Okay. Hey, here's my something you can buy. And it's, it's horrible. Um, and I think it's, it's about the difference between kind of a sprint and and a marathon. And if you genuinely think you can, you have something that's worthwhile to someone else, you can't just say, well, here's my thing. You have to build a relationship. 
and that takes time and you have to be genuine about it. So my advice to anyone is before you reach out to someone, you have to think about a what what's in it for them. You know, the, the most popular radio state, UWIFM. What's it about? Why do they care? We know why you care. You want their business. You want whatever it is. And so I think, again, you have there are two steps. One is think about what is it that you can do. Get to know that person you're reaching out to and say, hey, I noticed that you have this great podcast. Uh, I have someone who might be a good fit for it. Now you're giving something to you as opposed to, hey, and I have this great you know product that you should buy. Um, so start with a way that you can give because then you're giving and making them the focus. And so I think it's important to think about it that way. Another thing is, is be genuinely interested in getting to know that person better and building a relationship. And, and then there's an appropriate time when to ask. And there's a famous, well, a popular celebrity marketer named Gary Vaynerchuk. And he wrote a book called Jab, Jab, Right Hook. And the idea is that he always believes in, you know, any relationship in business should be 51, at, at a minimum, 51-49, where you're giving more than you're taking. But what I love about that Jab, Jab, Right Hook is that when you're dealing in any business relationship, you should be thinking about giving, 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 and then not taking, but asking, and so I think, again, you, you have to earn the right to ask someone for something after you've given to them. And so I, I think that is a good way of thinking about the approach. When you're emailing someone, and sometimes it may be like, even, even if it, it's, hey, Jeff, uh, I love what you're doing. I'd love to learn more about what you do and see if there's a way I can help. To me, that's a much more than, I've got this great product, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, then you can at least, and, then, and then the second part is, if you write that email, mean it. Don't, don't do a smoke, you know, smoke and mirrors and be like, Hey Jeff, I think what you do is really great. Even though I've never looked at anything you've done, uh, I'd love to learn more. And then I get on the phone with you and then I try and sell you. Um, so it, it, you have to be genuine. And so I think again, the people that are genuine interested, you know, it goes back to, you know, Dale Carnegie, you know, be genuinely interested in others, um, you know, and that's how you build relationships. And so I, I build relationships a lot where I'm, I may never get something back from it because here's the beauty of when you operate that way, you'll become successful because not only is helping others good business because then they'll want to help, you know, the rule of reciprocity on that, but it's also just good. You're just doing a good thing. You're putting karma in the world. And so I always tell people when they're like debating whether or not they should do something good, but, yeah, you because know, listen, I want to make money and I want to succeed and do all things. But if you're not doing it with integrity, you'll be found out, and then it'll all be. It's a very short-term focus. You have to look at business in the long term, and and realize that being a good person with ethics and morality, and and just again being interested, be a learner. Now be curious. That's to me. That's a really big skill of how you be successful. Be curious in what other people do. Then there'll be then eventually things. You know, there'll be an opportunity where that it'll make sense to ask, or or it might not. You know, it may not be that. I mean, like Jeff, you know, I love what you're doing, um, and I've shared a bit about what I do. Do you know anyone who might be helpful for me to meet? And then 
It's because even asking you about someone in your network that I might be able to help is helping you because if I do a good job at what I do and you connect me to someone and then I do a good job for them, that comes back to you. So sometimes it's about that indirect way. Um, but, but to me, it's, it's simply about being genuine, being authentic, um, and approaching it without that agenda, or at least tempering the agenda. We all have it, you know, we're humans, but tempering the agenda until the appropriate time. Yeah. And it's being the guy. It's not being the hero. It's not about me, 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 me. It's all about you, 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 you. Oh, but yeah, I can help you with that. And uh, when you start to realize this, and for me especially, when I receive email, I'm completely intolerant, completely. So I'm really, really aware when I reach out to people, am I giving enough to deserve what I'm asking for here? And I think, yeah, cool. I'm going to give you... uh what I do, and I'm going to give LinkedIn, it could be done on email as well. Um, because there are those people who are kind of pushing out what they have and it's clear. So I have a um, top copy and paste piece mm-hmm. that I send back when, when someone reaches out to me that I'm like, I don't know you, you know, and I write back saying, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it. I want to be transparent with you. It's highly unlikely that I'm going to engage in what you have to offer. Here's what I do. If that's useful to you, then let me know. So that way I'm at least making it a little harder for them to just push at me. And, and a little bit about um, if they, st- and, and I would say 90% of the time, I never hear from them again. There's a surprise. <laughs> because they, they don't know how to build a relationship in the first place. And, and those I, that do, I'm, I'm like, okay, good. Let's build a relationship. Yeah, yeah, so it's, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? The person who receives that cut and paste from you, they'll think you're the bad guy, not them. Right. <laughs> uh, that I can't help. I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I have at some point, you know, that's, that's my version of intolerance okay. um, is being responsive, but being clear, you know, being transparent to them. That's to me, that's being as helpful as I can be at that moment in time for someone who I think is not playing a genuine game mm-hmm. or not necessarily playing, you know, the kind of game that I want to play in. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll share a, a winning formula that I have on LinkedIn. Okay. So it's very rare that I advertise I'm doing a training course. Very rare because some will go, oh, yeah, great. Jeff's in Dubai or he's in Singapore or, oh, great, yeah, and and move on. That's what they'll do. I don't think anybody will go, oh, wow, let me come to that. <laughs> so, so, so what I do, I, I um, set a poll. So I put a, a, a question there that questions some aspect of the industry that they're in. So if somebody is a service manager in a car dealership, for instance, I'll say, if you're a service manager in a car industry, this is for you. So it's back to you lawyers, I'm, I'm in you, okay? And then I'll pose a question and it will have four possible answers. But I also say right at the beginning, when you vote on a poll, I will know who you are. I have your contact information and I don't think a lot of people know that. So what I'm saying is, 
when you make your vote, participate. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you participate and you put your vote on the poll, I'm going to make a video for you and I'm going to send it to you in your personal message on LinkedIn. So what do you think Love that it. does? Is that written that you're going to do? Yeah, that? yeah, it's written. It's right at the beginning. When you vote on this it. poll, I'm going to give you a personalized video explanation of the answer to this question. And I'm going to send it to you in this LinkedIn poll on, on your personal LinkedIn message. I assume what it does is anyone who doesn't want to engage further doesn't answer. Mm-hmm. And those that participate are like excited about getting a personalized message. Yeah. Um, because I think, again, that that part of what's in it for me, you're saying personalized. It's about you. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it's a really effective way, and I might steal it um, yeah. um, or borrow it with permission. Um, <laughs> so so no, I, I, I like it. I like it a lot. And I think you sending a video message to on LinkedIn is huge. I do that a lot, and I think it's an untapped way of doing it. You know, And, and my, my content approach to, to LinkedIn is to share, and this is my content, in general, is to share edutainment. Yeah. So something that's either entertaining or and or valuable. So I give little known facts that are just like, oh, that's because people like to know these things. I give statistics on visual storytelling. Um, you know, I give quotes because I love quotes. So it's yeah. Uh, and without saying, hey, buy my thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no there's no agenda. It's about here's a little nugget that hopefully brings a smile to your face or is uh, something you go, oh cool. Yeah. <laughs> So, interesting, you say about PAD. Here's what I do on mine. Here's a question that invokes a problem in your business. What do you think the answer is? A, B, C, or D? So then they vote. I know who's voted. So then I make a video about that problem. See, I've got the advantage of seeing you here on the screen, and you're smiling and nodding. So I send them this video, which is about five minutes long. It is fantastic quality. It's awesome. So I explain about the problem. I explain what the solution to the problem is. I hope you found it useful. It's about five or six minutes, something like that. And then underneath, by the way, if you want to know even more about this subject, here's one that might be of interest to you. And that's a link to a training course I'm doing on the subject. Guess what happens? People sign up for your training. Yeah, there you go. And I always get messages to say, oh, Jeff, that video was fantastic. I loved it. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. So I would say 50 or 60% do that. So I That's put, amazing. I put, a po- I put a poll on LinkedIn today. And no, Sunday morning, actually. It was Sunday morning. And within an hour... It had 5,000 views on a Sunday morning. And I'm like, goodness me. And 96 people had voted on the poll. And I'm thinking, a Sunday. That's, so, that's so, a lot of videos you got to create. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it is one video. It, it's, it, it's not to you. It's like... I, you've taken part in the LinkedIn poll. And hey, yep. oh, maybe we go. Doesn't no, no, need, no, I, I'm, Yeah. So... <clears throat> So I messaged a friend of mine who lives in Dubai. I'll, I'll call him Steve because that's his name. And I said, hey, Steve, <laughs> I've just put this poll on LinkedIn and the response has been phenomenal. And he went, oh, great. Give me the link. Let me have a look. So he went on and here's the interesting thing. 
and he voted and he got the answer wrong. So I messaged him back and I said, hey, last time you were on a training course with me, you scored 100%. And you, you've now lost your crown, my friend. You've got the answer wrong. And he said, Jeff, let me tell you the truth. I love what you're doing. And I've answered the question, I've answered on the poll for one reason. I said, what's that? He said, I don't care if I get it right or wrong. I just want your video. They're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so th that's a classic example of PAD. Absolute classic example. So you're very welcome to steal it. And you, the listener, there's always nuggets in these. <laughs> So, That's the whole idea, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Jeffrey Klein, have you written a book yet? Interestingly, you ask, no, and it's in the works. Okay. It's Do you have any clarity and intentionality on what this book is going to be about? Oh, 100%. It's been outlined and it's been started. I've written about 3,000 words so far. Okay. So, when is it going to be published, do you think? This year. Okay. This year being 2023. 2023. And are you able to share what it's about? Sure. Um, not surprisingly, it's what I call, it's a content marketing book, mm -hmm. um, which will share with people why content's so important and how to do it. Awesome. You know, tip, so it'll have both kind of, a background foundation about, you know, why at this given time you have to actually think about your content. And then here's how you can do it with some resources and some actual practical tips on creating consistent, relevant, valuable content. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew you hadn't written a book. Or I didn't think you had because I'd done lots of research on you before you came onto the show. And I'm thinking, why? It's not true. None of it. Yeah. <laughs> So, and then as we're talking, I'm thinking, you've, you've just got to write a book. You just have to. So I'm, I'm very proud that you are. So here's a question for you. You've not written a book before. So how do you get inspired to write a book? Well, as we started at the very beginning of the show, uh, I, I consider myself a writer. So I've been writing stories since I was a little kid. Um, and, but inspired and motivated, I think, are two different things. I want to make the distinction. Mm -hmm. um, I get inspired all the time by, by things that I think, wow, that, that I have a – people will share something, and I'll, oh, that would be really useful for the book that I want to write. You know? And so I'm uh, every day, which is really – I've outlined my book, and then I keep pulling in things kind of like you see the twins. Now that I'm thinking about how to be an effective content marketer, I'm now pulling in all these things I think will be helpful. Um, the motivation, I've wanted to write a book for a while. So it's taken time, time, time's the critical word there. Um, I started one book and um, it wasn't the right book at the right time. It was gonna take too long because it's more narrative in function and I realized, and I was like, well, I want to write a more narrative business book because that's my kind of premise. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I can help people. Yeah, I think the, the, the inspiration motivation has to be how can I help people? I and mean, just like we talked about in business, you know, writing a book can be seen as a vanity thing. You know, my, my intention writing the book is very simple. One is to 
take everything that's in this brain, all my experience, and put it in one form or put some of it in one form that can be put out in the world to help people. Like that is the ultimate goal is that if you are struggling with content, here's a book that will help you be better at it. Very simple. Uh, and the second reason is because to be a speaker, I think you need a book. And so I want to speak more. <laughs> and so there you go. So I got to write a book. Okay. All uh, right. But, then. I, but as a writer, I, I'm, I think that I've got a few books in me. And so this will just be the first. Okay. Then I'm going to ask the question in a slightly different way. Okay. So here we go. Motivation gets you started. Determination keeps you going. Let's leave inspiration out of it then. So okay. you've had the motivation, you've got started. Where, where does the determination come from to keep you going on this book? Uh, desire. So I have an end result that I'm, I'm passionate about, which is being able to help people. Um, and I think I have something useful to say. So determination is, is, is not a problem. It's discipline. Is, is, uh, I'm determined to write, but do I actually write? I don't know. Um, so it's intentionality. We go back to intentionality. They're all in there. So it's about having a plan about, uh, and having accountability partners, I think is really important. So I'm now at the stage where I'm telling people I'm writing a book. So it's mm -hmm. out there in the world. I just told you it's going to be published you, you've this You've just told year. quite a few thousand now, Jeffrey Klein. <laughs> this book must come out. <laughs> do you have a title uh, yet? I, think, uh, I do. It's called The Content Beast. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, because I believe in business that everyone needs to feed the content beast. Mm, there's um, a phonological ambiguity there in that the content beast or the content mm -hmm. beast. Ah. And it also has kind of a dual meaning because the content beast is a, is a character that you need to feed. And I want to help you become a content beast by being able to create lots of content. So okay. Cool. Cool. Excellent. Um, and I like, yeah, content, content, yeah. Con content beast. Yeah, Cause when you, you feed the beast, he goes from being the content beast to the content beast. Yeah. What makes them content? Mm, this could go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I should just start writing. Wait, let, you're recording this. I can just transcribe yeah, yeah. it all. There's another chapter of the book written. Yeah. I ask that for a specific reason, because lots of people come to me and say, hey, Jeff, you've written seven books, number one bestsellers, da, 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 da. How do you prepare? Which is one thing. And then... How is it when you're halfway through? How do you keep going? What, what, what keeps you going? Why do you not say, yeah, I, I'll give up now? Because so many people do. You asked me why I didn't uh, quit law school. Um, <laughs> and so there's an element of, you know, I, personally, you know, trying to finish what I start. But, but I think, again, it, it, you have to want to do it. You know, I think if you, if you approach the book, uh, and I know a lot of people say they want to write a book and very few actually write a book. Um, and I'm, I'm known amongst many people uh, and to be blunt about it, getting shit done. <laughs> so, um, I'm good at that, you know? And I think again, if you're not good at that, then you need to get the support around you to help you get there. And that's why I think having an accountability partner in some form, uh, and then, and then, Thing, okay, I'm going to have, you know, 5,000 words by the end of this month. 
You know, you put it out there with your accountability partner and then you check in and, and, you know, I love the quote, uh, even if you, you know, shoot for the moon and miss, you'll be among the stars or something along this line. And so again, you may not hit your mark exactly, but as long as you're working towards a goal and then you, you know, you adjust, um, it's all about moving forward, you know, because even if you fall flat on your face, you're still moving forward. Indeed, absolutely. One of the things I've found out is that having a why and what happens if you don't? It makes it much harder, you know, and again, I think that goes back to finding something you love, having, having the, the passion for what you're doing. Um, I'm a big Simon Sinek fan. So starting with why means a lot to me. And if any of your listeners have not seen his Ted talk, I recommend go and find Simon Sinek's start with why it is fantastic. Um, and it, and it showcases the most successful companies understand their why. And it makes everything easier to know does. that, you know, you're, you're, you know, that is the motivation, you know, again, why do you want to do this? Because I want to, you know, I believe that the world will be a better place if we communicate better. You know, that's kind of my why. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I want to help people do that by connecting through stories. Awesome. Love it. Now I have a question that okay. I ask all of my guests, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what are they doing? Are you ready for this one? Deep breath. Yes. You ready? Jeffrey Klein. What is the most important thing you have ever learned? Uh, I'm going to share, I think it's find what you love to do because if, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. Someone said. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, so that, for that, me, it, that comes back it's to your, about, yeah, your Venn diagram from when we started. So in the top, we've got yeah. your passion then we've got what we get paid to do. And then are you good at it? So if you can get all three, then you hit the, the sweet spots in the middle. So yeah, that lesson is valuable to yeah. me. The most important thing is, to identify, to get clarity, then use that intention and put it into action. Wonderful. Love it. So if someone wants to reach out to you, how do they do that? Uh, it's very easy. You can, uh, if you go to ggkline.com, that's my speaker, uh, or if you go to nine.media.com, that's my um, business. Jeffrey at nine.media.com and then LinkedIn, GG Klein on a lot of the platforms, Instagram, uh, and email is jeffrey at nine.media.com is probably the easiest way, but uh, lots of ways to reach out to me. Okay. Um, I know you've done a TEDx talk as well. So how do we find your TEDx talk? There's two ways. I'll give you the easy way and, and the easy, the second easy way. One is to, I, I created a vanity diva uh, <laughs> website called jeffreyspeaks.com. So my name with a G, if you put jeffreyspeaks.com, it'll take you right to the YouTube video, or if you Google me, uh, if you just put in Jeffrey Klein TED, TEDx talk, it'll pop up. Um, but those are the easiest ways to find it. I highly recommend watching it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I shall no doubt Thank you. go watch it again. Now I've been fortunate enough to spend this time with you. But that's it for today. Jeffrey Klein, you have been truly amazing. We've had some Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. It's been wonderful having you here. So if we could summarize again, storytelling and its impact 
and Pad, would you like to go ahead with that? Would that be a nice end? Yeah. If you're looking to effectively communicate with an audience, the best way to do that is by telling a story. And the easiest way to tell a story is to use an age-old three-act structure using the story pad. Start with a problem, then tell your answer, and then share the difference or impact it makes to that person. So what's the problem? What's your solution? And then what's the difference between where they were on the beginning of the journey with the problem and what, how they will be at the end of the journey with the solution to the problem? Brilliant stuff and nice and easy to apply. Awesome. Jeffrey Klein, you've been amazing. Thank you so much indeed. I've loved having you on the show. There's so many golden nuggets in there, so many. I would have loved to pick up more, but we just ran out of time. Maybe we get you back when your book is ready later this year, without doubt. Sounds like a plan. That sounds like a plan. Man plans, God laughs, huh? <laughs> well, you the listener, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel that you need to realize your dreams. Now, here's the most important bit. If you've, in, if you've enjoyed the show, please share it with one other person. I mean, you can do more if you want to, and I would love you to, but please share it because... <clears throat> We can't be successful unless you help us. And that's how I'd like you to help us. So we've had, oh, an hour and a half of this program. So we've given lots. So all I ask is that you share it with just one person. Uh, you can like it. You can review it. You can give it five stars. But the main thing is to share it so that we grow and help you even more. That is awesome. On another note, I'm always looking for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest on the show, please reach out to me at our website, which is jeff-smith.com. Oh, I spell my Jeff the proper way. J-E-W-L. <laughs> so I really would love to hear from you. Jeffrey Klein with a G. It's been wonderful having you on the show. I've really enjoyed it. You have been awesome. That's it from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.